Man, I'm excited to be here this morning. Glad you guys are here. Glad you were able to make it through the rain. I know yesterday was quite the nice day, and God so blessed us with rain and cold weather again today. So glad you're here. Glad you made it out of bed, um, able to shower. Uh, it's a good thing. You guys smell good. So <laughs> so this morning, we're, I'm, I'm going to start out. I want to talk to you about a guy named uh, William Wilberforce. So probably most famous and most well-known for one thing in particular, the abolition of the slave trade in England. You may have seen the movie Amazing Grace came out a few years ago. He, it, was, it was about his life. There, there he is right there. I really wish I could get a portrait taken like that. I don't think I could look that cool with the hair and everything. So, um, But honestly, his, his life obviously did not start with the abolition of the slave trade. He was born in August 4th, or 1759, uh, in England. By the age of nine, his dad had died. So his mom sent him off to live with his aunt and uncle uh, in a different part of England. And so they sent him off to school where uh, he got a lot of good Christian teaching. And so his mom, who was high church, was a little bit afraid that he would become an evangelical. So pulled him out of there and put him in another school where, as Wilberforce so aptly put it, he did nothing at all. <laughs> quite the school to go to. I wish I had gone there. Uh, no. Uh, but he, he was a pretty bright guy, very good with talking, uh, very intelligent when it came to the books. And so school was not a big deal from, for him. And he, he enjoyed doing kind of nothing at all. And so this pattern kind of continued. And we're going to skip a big chunk of his life. We're going to move to, he has graduated college now at the age of 21. And, and this lifestyle of doing nothing and kind of just hanging out had continued. The pattern had continued to this point. Um, he was a schmoozer. He was very good at like connecting with people and engaging them. Uh, his friend, William Pitt, who graduated with him, actually said that he had the greatest natural eloquence of all the men he ever knew. And William Pitt, who at 24 became the prime minister of England, that's his job is to connect and engage people across cultures, says that this guy is the best speaker and most eloquent speaker he has ever known. And so with that, and with a pretty hefty inheritance that he got from his dad dying and just his family in general, um, Wilberforce kind of lived a life of ease. He enjoyed partying, being part of the social elite. Uh, obviously, schmoozing came easy um, to him. So this was just a, a very natural place for him to go. So he ends up going into, and I bet you all can guess it, politics. This is where Wilberforce ends up, is in politics. And so at the age of 21, imagine that, the age of 21, this guy enters parliament as one of the, the men in politics for his, the area he lived in. Now, he'll tell you later in his life that really a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was just filthy rich. He, he spent like 8,000 pounds in 1759, mind you, we're talking like 300 years ago almost, he spent 8,000 pounds on his political campaign. He had a little bit too much money. Let's just He had a lot of money and a lot of free time and just didn't care where he spent it. And so a lot of the reason he got into office was that. Um, but he, he was a very um, good and engaging speaker as well. So he's in office at the age of 21 and continued the life of partying and hanging out with the social elite and doing kind of whatever he wanted. And this continued for about four years uh, until one day he, he was going on holiday because Parliament only went for a few months, and so they had these large breaks. And what did he do with his money? He, of course, went to the French Riviera and hung out and partied because that's what I would do if I had a ton of money and no 
place to keep me down. So uh, he, he's getting ready to go on holiday to the French Riviera, and he meets up with one of his, he, he runs into one of his old school buddies, Isaac Milner, um, who's a very intelligent uh, guy, and he was good buddies with him in school. So he invites him to come along on holiday with him. And so as they're traveling to the French Riviera from England, he comes to find out that Milner is actually a Christian. And this kind of upsets and kind of startles Wilberforce because he had this image and portrayal. He understood what Christians were like. They were all a little crazy. And they were a little weird. None of them really understood um, or were not really, he, he saw them as not intelligent. But Milner, he knew as a guy in school and was a contemporary with him and saw him as this guy who obviously didn't just do this off a whim. And so he began talking to, to him about this. Um, wanted to know what brought him to this. And so they, they actually spent the majority of their holiday talking over theology books in the New Testament. And so Wilberforce says as he came back from that holiday, he intellectually, he understood Christianity finally. It made sense to him. Christ did not change his heart, but he understood Christianity. He knew what it, what it was about. And so over the course of the next two or three years, him and Milner continued this relationship, and eventually Christ saves him. And he becomes a professing, believing Christian. And with this new heart, William starts to begin and feel and see a significant change in his life. Uh, he, he, became, he, he became driven to change what he called the shapeless idleness. His whole life had been this nothingness that he just hung out and partied and did whatever he wanted. He became driven to change this shapeless idleness that de had defined his life up to this point. And so... From, the, from about the moment he was converted for the next 11 years during every break from Parliament, it's said that he actually spent somewhere around 10 to 11 hours in his study a day reading and studying the Bible. Um, and that, that happened for at least 11 years up to the point that he was married. And I recognize, you know, there's, this probably didn't happen every single day, but the reality is, is that for the majority of his life, up to that point, he spent 10 to 11 hours a day for weeks and months and years reading and studying the Bible. Uh, he would go on to memorize a ton of scripture, including Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in all of the Bible, which he quoted every day as he walked to work. That's, that was his journey to work, was quoting Psalm 119. Uh, he wrote a book called The uh, Practical Guide to Christianity, and as we said in the beginning, the thing that he worked towards for the next 46 years of his life was the abolition of the slave trade in England. And that is what his life was given to. And though he spent 46 years getting a resounding no from all of Parliament over this, he fought until literally days before his death. It's like four or five days before he died, he saw the slave trade ended. Now, I wanted to share this story with you before we got into the sermon because I think if we were to look at a guy like William Wilberforce and see all these amazing things that he did, I mean, this guy did some serious work for Jesus, right? I mean, this guy got stuff done. I had a hard time getting out of bed and taking a shower this morning. This guy is quoting Psalm 119 on the way to work every day. This guy, he got stuff done. <clears throat> and I think... I think the thing is, is that we would have a tendency to look at Wilberforce and say that he is a good, godly guy because of all the things that he did. That we would look at all these achievements and all these things that, that Wilberforce had achieved in his life and had become and um, 
we would say that's what deems him to be a good guy. And I think Wilberforce would look at you and tell you that you are so absolutely wrong, and he would actually probably be offended at you for saying that. Because the reality is, is that Wilberforce's work wasn't because he needed to earn or gain some kind of acceptance or love or approval from God, but because, because he had gained some kind of love and acceptance and approval from God, because he had gained all of that through Christ. Um, and he says it this way, speaking of, in his day they had a lot of um, ethical people, good moral people who did these things and called themselves Christians because they did good things. Um, and this is, this is what he said about these people. Let him then, who would abound and grow in this Christian principle, be much conversant with the great doctrines of the gospel. From the, from the neglect of these peculiar doctrines arise the main practical errors of the bulk of professed Christians. These gigantic truths retained in view would put to shame the littleness of their dwarfish morality. The whole superstructure of Christian morals is grounded on their deep and ample basis. In other words, these people were doing all these good things hoping to make something of themselves to God. And Wilberforce says, those aren't what makes you acceptable and love and good in God's eyes. Christ did. That if you were to really study the gospel and you were really to understand the great doctrines of Scripture, you would understand first and foremost that we don't work to gain anything, but we work because we've gained everything. So, and I want us to make this distinction today because as we, we look at the word that we're going to look at today, which is the word of victory, Adam talked about it earlier. As we look at Christ's finished work on the cross, I think we typically will try to fall into one of two camps as we look at this. Either we'll see God's finished work on the cross and fall into this life of grace, um, where we feel like we can do anything because grace covers all things. And so we go into license and, and we do whatever we want because it makes us feel good knowing that God has forgiven us and covered us in his grace. Or we fall into the other side of the pendulum swing where we think we have something to gain or add to the work that Christ did. And so we create all these rules and these structures and these guidelines so that we do these good things so that God will look at us and approve us and find us to be worthy of something. My hope is today when we get done talking about this, as we look at, at Christ saying on the cross, it is finished that you won't look for and find a life in license or legalism, but that you'll find that if you, you dwell deeply and you hold tightly to the gospel, the work of Christ on the cross, you'll live a life that makes much of God and not of yourself. So, with that said, let's cheer, turn to the uh, verse we're going to be looking at today. John chapter 19, uh, verses 29 through 30 is where we're going to be at. Uh, we're just honestly, we're going to pick up right where uh, we left off last week. Uh, the verse uh, that Seth went over last week with Jesus saying, I thirst. So we're in verse 29. Christ is on the cross and he has just said, I thirst. And it says, A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Now, if there is nothing else in this sermon today, if there's nothing else you hear today, 
I hope and I pray that you hear those words, it is finished, and you are excited. That there is something in your spirit that just wells up with joy and happiness at this one saying. In fact, in scripture, in the Greek, it is one word. And it just means it is all accomplished. It's done. It's finished. Find joy and excitement in that today, Christian. If nothing else, I pray that you do. For the last five weeks, we've looked at, in specific, these words that Christ has given us from the cross. And we've looked at his forgiveness, and we've looked at his compassion and the anguish that he felt. And we recognize and we can see the work of Christ on the cross in those words and what it means for us. But the the awesome part about today is we look at it is finished, as we find this linchpin almost that holds it all together, that all these other things that we've looked at and we've talked about, they're all kind of brought in and tied together in this one saying. And as I began studying this and looking at this, uh, there was almost like this, I wanted to like giggle and, and, and laugh. And, and I was just so extremely joyous because of the sheer wonder and beauty of this thought that as Christ took the sour wine, and then looked out and said, both for himself, and I think ultimately for us, he said, it is finished. Now, I think naturally we, we have three questions that we're going we're gonna to look at and that kind of come to mind as we look at this today. The first being, what was it that fin- was finished? What is it that Christ is claiming to be done and accomplished on the cross today? The second one being, what did he do to finish it? And the last one being, what does this mean for me now? So, Let's start with the first question being, what was it that Christ finished? And if we go back and we look just a few, just one verse prior, actually, to where we started, we'll see that Christ said, uh, in order to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I thirst. So the first thing we recognize that Christ in this moment is able to recognize that he's not only asking for a drink because he thirsts, and Seth talked about this last week. He's not only asking for a drink because he's, he's thirsting and needing to do that, but it was the last thing he needed to do in order to fulfill the scriptures and to show himself to be our Savior and Messiah. Christ, on this moment, had finished and accomplished all that the scriptures spoke of in regards to him being our Savior and Messiah. So if I was truly to answer this question, what was it that Christ finished? I probably would just hand you the Bible and say, how about you just read the Old Testament, the whole thing, and you look up every single word and every single type and every single shadow and every single prophecy that had anything to do with Christ. And in this moment, you see it finished. And I mean, recognize the bigness of this. I realize that we can't go over every single one of those today, but realize the hugeness of this moment. It was just a few words spoken, but in this moment, all of redemptive history was leading up to this point. Everything that God had planned, everything that God had put together in regards to mankind and saving them was all leading up to this moment. So in Genesis 3.15, when God is speaking to Satan and he says to him that out of the woman is going to come a seed and you'll strike his heel, but he's going to strike your head. This is that moment that he was speaking of. In Deuteronomy 18.15, when God is speaking through Moses and he says that he's going to raise up another prophet who would speak the words from God in the mind of God. This, this man, Jesus Christ on the cross, as he did this, he was fulfilling that. All of the words that he had spoken up to this point were from the mouth of God, and he was that prophet. 
when Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant in chapter 53, when he talked about the virgin birth, when he talked about Emmanuel, that, that God is with us, this is that moment. Christ is that man. He came and he fulfilled this. And he did more than fulfill just direct prophecies, but Jesus finished the work and filled the role that no man or object could ever take by, by fulfilling the shadows that, and types that God had put in place. Uh, from the beginning, God had set up this sacrificial system because the recognition was we were sinners and there was a punishment that had to be paid for our sin. And so he set up the sacrificial system where um, the death that was needed and the punishment that was needed for our sin was laid upon an animal. But obviously, this was a broken system because the reality is if God created us to worship, to worship only him, then the killing of animals would need to end, right? But it didn't. In fact, the law just continued to point out that we were sinners and showed us that we couldn't actually live up to the standard God had set because we were sinners. And so he had set in place this moment and this time that a Messiah would come and he would end the sacrifice and he would end the rituals. And there was a hope put in the people as they, they went through this and they did this and they recognized their sin. There was a hope that there was a time coming when it would all be over, when this would be done and the Messiah would come and he would save them. Jesus was that Messiah and that sacrifice that they needed. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We go on, Romans tells us that Jesus was actually the better Adam. And when he faced his trial in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was tempted, where Adam brought us death because of his failure, Christ brought us life because he came through it. He was a greater Moses who did not just bring the word of God, but was himself the word of God. Hebrews 4 through chapters 4 through 6 also shows us and tells us that Jesus was the better and the ultimate high priest. That while God had set in motion this, this sacrificial system and he'd put this man in place to mediate between man and God, the recognition was is that the man had to clean himself before he could even do that because the man was a sinner. And there had to be somebody else who would come in to replace him because he was going to die because of his sin. And so Jesus comes in and he is this greater and better high priest who was perfect and eternal and needed no one to come in and take his place after his death because he rose again and needed no one to forgive his sins because he was perfect. And so he became the one who could enter into the holy places, into the holy of holies and represent man to God because he could come into the presence of God and he could also sympathize with us as man as he dealt with the temptations and the struggles he faced here on this earth. And lastly, this is obviously not the last thing that Christ accomplished, but the last thing I want to talk about is Jesus finished and fulfilled the whole of the law. Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says, Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There's not a thing written in the law down to the last dotting of the I or crossing of the T that Christ did not finish and fulfill and accomplish. Jesus did it all. And we recognize and we see all of these things from Scripture that Christ came. And we, we can see him as the Messiah and the Savior because he came and fulfilled all these things that Scripture said he was going to do. So we know him to be Savior and Messiah. So the question now is, how did he finish this work? How did, how did Christ do this work of accomplishing all of this? And the answer, honestly, is pretty simple. He did it by working hard for God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in John 4.34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says later in chapter 20, verse 21, that he was sent by God. This was not some kind of random thing that Jesus decided to do. This mission that he had come on was once he was sent on by God. This was the work of God he was coming to accomplish here on earth. This was not just something he made up or decided upon along, or along the way. And we can see, I think, that Jesus had come and did accomplish the work of God. You know, they say his life was somewhere around like 33 years. And honestly, his public ministry was just the last few years. But if you read, I mean, if we look back at just those things that I said, and we look at Scripture says that Jesus accomplished, in a few years, I don't think we can have any doubt that Jesus was here and he was doing the work that he was sent to do. That is, that's why he was here. I mean, I... The thing I think is so interesting about this is you and I, we tend to be very distracted when it comes to working and when it comes to our life in Christ. And we almost seem to have this dual identity where on the weekends and maybe at community group and in certain moments we're Christian. And then the rest of the time, you know, we're in work mode and we're in uh, dad or mom mode or parent mode or we're, we're this other person. But the reality is, is that Christ came and, you know, he had friends. He had a social life. He worked as a carpenter for a time. He had a life just like you and I. But there was this overarching mission that drove and gave him purpose in all that he did. And for us as Christians now today, the, the reality is, is that we, we can't be distracted by these other things because we have been given a new identity in Christ. And so we, we live out this purpose not looking to be Christians sometimes and to be something else another. Well, we have the overarching mission of bringing glory to God in all that we do now. We can't be distracted. The work is not done for us here. And my, my challenge to you today, find what it is that you, you are giving your time to and finding yourself distracted by, and let your focus be driven by the same one that God, that Jesus Christ had to bring glory to his Father. Don't be distracted by those other things. Do the work that God has sent you and called you to do. And the second part of that, as I was talking about, um, is that Christ did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I think a lot of times we have an, a tendency to look at Jesus and go, you know, he was God. He kind of could do whatever he wanted. And so we see all this work that he accomplished and all the great things that God did through him. 
But if you actually read scripture, it says that in Philippians, he set aside for a time part of his divinity that he might take upon himself flesh. And so there's a reality that he was God, fully God, and fully man too. And so as he did these things, it was not um, always by using these supernatural divinity powers that he had. Don't hear me downplaying Christ's divinity. He was 100% God. But if you read scripture, especially in the gospel of Luke, you'll find over and over again that Christ did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you read the gospel of Luke, as Jesus is sent out into the wilderness after his baptism and the Holy Spirit's come upon him, he goes out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and it says he does that because the Holy Spirit led him there. And as Satan tempts him while he's in the desert, it says that he overcame those temptations by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he comes back from that, and he's in the temple preaching from the scroll of Isaiah, and he preaches these words, he says he does it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you continue reading through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that over and over again, as he does these miracles and these miraculous works, as he's looking to make much of God and do the work he was sent, he did it all, you'll see over and over again, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the awesomeness about this. I just made up that word, the awesomeness about this. You and I, as Christians, have been sealed and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That when you are saved by Christ, the third member of the Trinity comes and dwells and empowers you now. And so this same Trinity, the the same Holy Spirit that lived and worked through Christ and empowered him and filled him and gave him the ability to do the ministry he did, fills and lives and is indwelling you. You are here and you have the power. Not, you're not God. Don't hear me say that. You're not Jesus Christ. But you've been gave, given the same power and the same calling as he did to make much of God, to glorify him, to make disciples, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and given the power to do so, to accomplish the work that has been given to you. It's not too big because God is the one who's empowering you to do it. And so, I mean, we've already kind of talked about it. We've already kind of hit on it. Um, But we understand now what Christ came and he accomplished. And we understand how he accomplished it. So the third question, the third thing we have to ask, in light of all this, what's this mean for me? What does all this mean? I, I understand that Christ came and he fulfilled all of the scriptures and he became for us our Savior and Messiah. We see it. But what does this mean for me? And this, this is where I hope you begin to not only hear the gospel and see it, but you begin to feel it a little bit. Because when Jesus said, it's finished, when he looked down from the cross and said, it is finished, What he meant was that all that was needed to make atonement was complete. You have been made, if you are Christ, you have been made at one with God. Think about that. Not that you are God, but you can have a relationship with him. You can draw near to him. You can speak to him as father. And it was all because Christ came and he made atonement for you. Atonement meaning at one meant. See it in the word? Atonement. He brought you to be at one with God because the reality is is that you and I are sinners and God created us to worship him, but instead of worshiping him, Romans 1 tells us that we decided to worship created things. 
So we decided to start worshiping things like our money and sex and power and fame and our job and our spouse. We started worshiping these things. And because of that, because of our sin, because God is holy and righteous, we can't enter into his presence. We can't commune with God. We can't be at one with God because we're in opposition to him. We're worshiping all those other things rather than him. And so God tells us in Scripture, Romans 6 says, that the wages of sin is death. And it's more than just a physical death because the reality is is that because of our sin, our bodies are dying. And so you will die. Reality, death and taxes, right? You'll, You'll die. But it was more than just a physical death. It was a spiritual death as well. That you and I cannot have a relationship with God Almighty because of our sin. It's impossible. There's nothing we can do. The thing we were created for, the thing we were meant to experience in God Almighty was dead. But here is the awesomeness and the beauty of this story. Jesus comes in. That before time began, God had set in place and in motion this plan for your redemption. He didn't mean to leave you in that. He didn't mean to leave you dead and dying with no hope. But he had set in place before time began our redemption in Jesus Christ. And so this is where Jesus steps into the picture. Or, I mean, honestly, where he's always been in the picture. That he might come and die and take away the wrath and our sin, that we might know God. So Ephesians 1, 4 through 10 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, being Jesus Christ. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him in heaven and on earth. Before time began, Jesus was coming to save us, and he was coming to redeem us to God. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cries, it is finished, It was not a cry of sorrow because of an ended life, but a cry of victory and exclamation of God's sovereignty in this world. Jesus may have fulfilled all of the prophecies, and he may have fulfilled all the types and the objects that Scripture had spoke of him, but that only gave us recognition that he was a Savior. If he hadn't died, if he hadn't gone to the cross, if he hadn't finished the work, none of us would know or be at one with God. This is what matters. This is what, it is finished. You went from a place of dead and dying to alive and worshiping. Jesus brought fulfillment, his fulfillment not only brought recognition of him, of he, of who he was on the cross, He fulfilled all that was needed that we might worship the true king. An amazing thing about the gospel story, the amazing thing about this 
this work that Christ did on the cross is that not even once in Scripture does God expect us to save ourselves. He doesn't expect us to be the ones who saves us. But before time began, he had set in place a plan for his son, Jesus Christ, to finish this work. And this means that you and I, as Christians, we don't have one ounce of effort or ability to gain or earn any kind of thing from God. You and I are dead. Ephesians 2 tells us we're dead in our sins. Just so you know, dead people don't do much. You are dead in your sins. But in Ephesians 2, I feel like there should be this huge, like, the word but should be enormous in that chapter. Because the reality is, is that it tells us where we are in our sin, but Jesus Christ came in. And for you, Christian, though you have nothing you can gain or earn from God and his love or affection, it's yours in Jesus. That the forgiveness that we've talked about, the compassion we've talked about, the love we've talked about, the family that you have, all of these things, the atonement, they're yours in Jesus. You can't earn them. You can't gain them. There's nothing for you to do other than believe in Jesus Christ and in faith he gives you his righteousness and his standing and his place. You're seen as forgiven. You're seen as love. You're seen as accepted. You're seen as his child. That's who you are. It's yours in Jesus. Rejoice in that. Find happiness in that. That's who you are. You're not a sinner. You're not dead in your sins anymore. You're made alive and you get to worship your creator. The God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That's who you are in Jesus. And he did that for you in this work. I think um, in our culture, especially here where we live, we have a tendency to think that reading our Bible and praying and going to church and doing community group and doing outreach, these are all these things I can add up that God will like me more. He will think better of me. He will love me a little bit more. I'm a little bit better than that guy because I showed up to church an extra Sunday. And he didn't because he was sick. That was his sin, right? <laughs> I think we think that at some level. And in this culture, we have that, that mentality. But if you're really, truly, and honestly going to believe what Christ said here in this moment on the cross, that it is finished, there's nothing you can do. If you're doing that, then you don't, you're just saying that that's not real, that that's not a reality. In fact, you're saying it's kind of offensive to God because you're saying that the work that he had planned, this thing that he had put together from the beginning before time began was missing a piece, you. That Jesus' atonement and his sacrifice on the cross, his perfect life, it, it wasn't quite enough. That's what you're saying to him. But the reality is, is that it is finished. There's nothing for us to do. You live in this reality. I mean, think back to Wilberforce, what I said at the beginning, the quote that he had. These gigantic truths, speaking of the gospel and the great doctrines retained in view, would put to shame the littleness of their dwarfish morality. The whole superstructure of Christian morals is grounded on their deep and ample basis. You don't do those things like reading your Bible and praying. They're not bad things. Those are great things. Those are godly things. But you don't do them to earn anything. You do them because you've earned everything. 
You earn it. You, you do those things because Christ has made you who you are. It's finished. And so you do these things because it's done. Man, I'm like super excited right now and nobody is getting amped up. And amen, could I get one? Maybe, amen, there it is. Thank you. And I, I think that there's just this, we have a trouble juggling this in our minds. Because we wanna, we wanna do these things and we recognize them to be good things. But we, we live in such a time and a place where we think that they get us something. And I, I really, I, this weekend community group, we, we've been, we were talking about the new life, who Christ has made us to be. And if you read 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die, if you're not reading that or not in a community group, this is my time. I'm going to plug this in. Get in one and read it. It's awesome. It's awesome. But we talked about this. And Piper puts it in, man, he puts it in such great words because the reality is, is that you've, made, you've been made perfect and holy and blameless. The, the guilt that was sitting on your conscience is gone because Christ took it on the cross. And we live now to make this a reality. In other words, you're, you're working to make true what has already been declared a reality on the cross. You are perfect and you are holy and you are blameless. So by the Holy Spirit, now live a life that matches the reality that Christ set in our hearts by declaring it's finished on the cross. That's what you're meant to do. And the reality is, is that this changes our view and our fight as we look at Satan and our sin and our lives as well. Because in this victory, in this, we find the foundation for all of our fight. You can't fight outside of this. This means that you and I, if, there, if Christ finished the work, if he defeated the sin that held us back from, from having a relationship with God, if he defeated all of that and had victory over it, we can't hold a victim mentality to sin anymore. You and I can't look at our sin and say, you know what, I did this, but I'm a sinner, so it's okay. It's all right. You can't do that anymore. Jesus, Jesus finished the work. You can't. And you can't let it hold its grasp on you anymore. You're not a slave to it any longer. Your sin and your unrighteousness that Romans 6 says you are a slave to, you're, you're freed. Christ on the cross finished the work. You no longer have to work to be free from this. He did it. So as Christ, you can now freely obey him. Does that make sense? Before Jesus, you were a slave to sin and you could do nothing but sin. But in Christ, you're now free to obey him. You're free to do those things. You're free to be done with your sin. And so what this means is as you hear the lies from our world, the lies that say that money will buy you happiness. Money will make you feel okay. You'll feel comfortable when your bank account is high. You'll feel good because you're not going to have to worry about those things that may come up or may not come up. And you can, by the Holy Spirit now, look at the work that Christ finished on the cross and find comfort. You're free from it. It's done. Money holds no hold over you. Or you look at sex, and you, you get this uh, lie fed to us from everywhere, mind you. 
I mean, the reality is it, pornography grosses in its income more than pro basketball, baseball, and football combined in a year. That's unreal. Think about that. If you don't think sex is a big God in our country, a big lie that our, that, that our culture is telling us will give you happiness, will give you love, will give you the satisfaction you need, then you've, you're not living here. I don't know where you're at. <laughs> that's the reality that we live in. And so we hear this lie that that's what sex does. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we hear the truth that in Christ we find the love that never ends the love that's greater and surpasses all things that you could ever want. Psalm 16 tells us that in Christ we find the fullness of joy and we find the pleasures forevermore. That's what Scripture says that, that in God we find pleasure forevermore. You're free from sin. It's done. It's over. It holds no sway over you. You can be done with it now. Maybe it's power. Maybe you, maybe you want to have some control over stuff. Or maybe you think that because you can, you're in a certain position, you can hold sway over certain things. The reality is, is that in Christ, we find that the, the real look of a leader, the real man in power, is the guy who comes to serve. Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve. The king, the one we worship, the one who is creator over all things says the way to leadership is by serving through humility. And so you can now look at the lie that you need to be in power over people in order to be made much of and recognize that you can be in humility and serve people. And that's where God makes much of you. And you get to make much of him. It says as he, he raises up the humble, he gives grace to the humble. He strikes down the prideful. You have this reality in Christ. It's yours. You don't have to work for it. You don't have anything to earn. You just believe in faith that Christ has done it for you. The scary part of this is that, like I said at the beginning, we tend to fall into two camps. One where we feel like we can live in freedom and do whatever we want now because Jesus has done so much and he's given us all this grace, so he's going to forgive me, right? we're going to make all these rules because we think we have something to get from him. But before time began, God had set in place a plan. He had set in place this way that all might, things might be united to him, that all things might be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, not through your works, not through my works, but through Jesus Christ. And as you are looking to fight sin and as you're looking to make this a reality in your life, the reality is you're going to fail. There are times that you're going to fail and you're going to falter and you're going to sin and there's going to be mess-ups. But here's the beauty of this. That's what makes this text so beautiful. You don't have to win. You don't have to get it exactly right. Jesus did, and it covers you. You don't have to get it exactly right. You don't have to be the one who doesn't mess up. Jesus was that guy. I think Wilberforce, I think he got this. I mean, I think this was ingrained deep in his heart and his mind. Because the reality is, is that for 46 years, if you were going to the same place every week, talking about the same thing and getting over and over and over again, no, no, I don't think so, no. 
I think after, <laughs> the reality is this is a sad part of me. I think after a few months, maybe even a few weeks, done. Like, I no more. I, I'm done with this. 46 years, this guy went back. And he brought statistics, and he brought arguments, and he brought speeches, and he brought testimonies. And he brought it all that God might be glorified because of the work that he had done in him. And this is what I want you guys to get here at the end. If you hold so deeply to the work that Christ has done to you, done in you, if you hold so tightly to the reality that it is finished, my hope is that not only would you get knocked down, but that you would get back up. Wilberforce, uh, it was really interesting. If you read his biography, man, I would totally recommend it. It is fantastic. Um, but his, his opponents used to say this about him. It is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit, which is so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous from blows. This dude was like, you get knocked down, I come back up swinging 10 times harder than I was before. That's who this guy was. And it wasn't because he was looking to earn something. He says it very specifically. It's because he had gained everything. I want that for you. I want you, when you get knocked down, to realize that it's been done in Christ. You get back up and you come back stronger. You come back fighting. That sin holds no power over you. Satan holds no sway over you. This world does not. The lies that you believe are gone. The truth has been applied. The Holy Spirit works and moves in you if you're a Christian. And Jesus finished it all. You got nothing to add. It's done on the cross. Man. I want to finish with this verse. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. And we read it earlier. It says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, no more needed to be given. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you. He's perfected for all time you who are being made perfect. That's what he's done. It's done. It's finished. Now make it a reality in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, and we are so grateful for all the work that you have done for us. God, we are so happy and joyous. And we find great relief, God, from the burden of our, our sin and trying to earn something from you. Because we recognize today, God, that as Jesus on the cross hung there and said, it is finished, that's a reality for us. That if, that if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the burden of our sin is gone. And your righteousness, Jesus, has sat in our place. We're seen as perfect and holy and blameless. Sin holds no power over us. It's been done. The victory has been won. Your scripture tells us, God, that, that we can go out and that the gates of hell will not prevail against your kingdom. That's because Jesus won it for us on the cross. It's done. It's finished. God, and I pray that that sits heavy and deep in our hearts today. I pray that as we think on this reality, that we remember all those things that Jesus has done for us, all those things, the promises we have that your scripture said are made yes in Jesus. And we recognize them to be a present reality in our lives, God. 
I pray that today, if there's sin in our lives that we are holding on to or that we are letting sit there, God, that it's not just something we, we mingle with or we manage, but God, that we put it to death, that it's done. And that God, we look to you as the one who is the finisher and perfecter of our faith. God, we love you so much. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.